One heart attack in a young family member is an unexpected shock. Two is a terrible coincidence that raises the heckles. But three? That sounds like a genetic mystery. Today, we're talking with a researcher and cardiac genetic counsellor who works with patients to uncover their genomic secrets. What genes or variants might be causing these heart problems? Hi, I'm Marajean Tilly, and this is Medical Minds, the podcast of the Garvin Institute of Medical Research. In this series, we're diving deep into the minds of our amazing researchers to find out how they tick and how they are working to make our lives better. With me here is Associate Professor Jody Ingalls, Head of the Clinical Genomics Laboratory at the Centre for Population Genomics. Welcome, Jody. Hi, Marajee. Jody, it sounds like a big part of your work is playing detective. Take us back to the basics. What is a gene and what is a genome? The most basic explanation, this is going back to, I guess, high school science, if you can cast your mind back that far. Basically, what we're saying is genetics is anything, any of the material that's inherited from one generation to the next. And genes especially are kind of like chapters in a in a textbook in, and they make a protein in the body that has a special job. So when we're looking for a change, we're often looking for one, you know, what we sometimes would describe as a spelling mistake or a variation or the old term used to be mutation. Um, so essentially a change in the, in the DNA sequence in one of those genes and that impacts on the way that that protein is put together and that's actually what can cause disease. The tricky thing is and why this is so complicated is there's 22,000 genes that we all have in all of our cells and we understand barely any of what all of that does. So often we're looking for proteins that do things in the heart and I guess even you know, sometimes it could be at least 500 genes that we're considering then probably more. And the other tricky aspect of it is, is even if I was to sequence my own DNA and look in my own heart genes, there'd be changes here and there. There'd be this rare variation that exists. And that's just what makes us all a little bit unique. And so working out which of those genetic changes is there because it's causing disease and which is just there by chance is, is the tricky part. And that's where a lot of the detective work comes in. Jody. You're a genomics researcher, but also a genetic counsellor. What does a genetic counsellor do? So genetic counselling was the graduate diploma that I chose to do at the end of my biomedical science degree because I didn't want to work in a lab and do research, do medical research. And interestingly, that's where I've ended up, but not in the lab, working with patients. So genetic counselling, lots of clinicians will perform genetic counselling. It's where we sit down and we talk to patients and help them understand genetic diseases and inheritance risks and we'll take a family history, um, we'll support them through the process of genetic testing. We play a really critical role in understanding their genetic results and what that means for their family. Genetic counsellors are specifically trained health professionals where we um, are trained in not only in being able to communicate that fairly complicated at times scientific information to families but also the psychosocial counselling. And it's that combination of being able to provide education about genetics, but also the psychosocial support that is what the benefit of genetic counselling is. So your role is really to straddle these worlds of science, research and genomics. 
but also to work with patients and their families to support them through what is no doubt a very scary experience. Yeah, 100%. And it actually really does feel like that at times too, because you actually get to the point in a lot of family discussions and where you're getting gene results back where we really don't understand what's going on. And, you know, we might see that family again in six months time and actually things make a lot more sense and because that's how fast the field moves. So it's, it's exciting in that respect. Jody, you've been counselling a family who had three young relatives experience serious cardiac events. Talk us through how you go about finding any possible underlying genetic causes. First step with all of these families, we see what clinical genetic testing we can offer first because this is taking the knowledge that we know and understand really well and applying that to our families as a first step. And it depends on the disease, but probably in about 40% of cases, we'll identify what we believe is the genetic cause and, and that's great. And we can start using that in the, in the family to work out who else is at risk and, and who doesn't need to worry about that. I guess for a lot of families, though, we still don't fully understand the genetic architecture of a lot of these diseases. And, you know, families like this that present with multiple individuals with really serious disease, we know that they are more likely to have an inherited cause. And so they present as a really interesting and useful way of actually being able to identify new genes. And if we can identify something new in a family like this, it obviously has huge implications for them and helps them but also that allows us around the world to take that knowledge and and make diagnoses in other families as well so it's really important when we find these families that we've got the capability to throw everything at it to try and understand it in this particular family uh, we'd done sort of fairly comprehensive clinical testing and hadn't found anything and interestingly another relative had had some comprehensive testing and, and nothing had been found either and so I guess the way we approach this is really ideally we want to be able to look beyond the genes that we already know really well. So we want to look for any other changes in any other cardiac genes. So kind of like looking for a needle in a haystack. But then we think, okay, well, you know, let's make it even more difficult for ourselves. So we start to think, what about in the genes we do know and understand, can we find changes in the little bits of the important parts, what we call the exons, in the actual intronic parts of the genes. And these actually can be really important in how proteins are put together. So they're not often sequenced by clinical labs, but are important in actually the way the protein is made. So lots of our work also involves looking at genes we actually know really well, but it just in different mechanisms of how they can be impacted Another really um, useful way when you've got families where there's multiple affected people is actually if you take DNA samples from numerous people in the family, you can actually try and look for what's common. If you can get people who are distantly enough related, then things aren't necessarily inherited by chance. And so you can start to narrow down, you know, the needle in the haystack. The haystack gets a little bit smaller and you can start to start to narrow that down. What does a diagnosis mean for these families? How important is that? Diagnosis is everything for these families. And it's often hard, you know, in grants and things like that to quantify all of the reasons why a diagnosis is important. But when you sit there in a room and you say to a family, this is why this has happened and we can now work out who in the family is at risk of this, that's everything. 
I mean, you actually can't even describe it to just understand why something in their family has happened, especially the families where there's been sudden death and they've got no understanding or reason as to why it's occurred and you can actually offer them a cause of death and an explanation. It's just indescribable. I guess practically for the families, once they've got a genetic diagnosis, increasingly can actually help us know what sort of how they should be managed and we can actually do certain things that might actually even prevent sudden cardiac death in certain people now based on their genetic result. I guess the key thing is for first degree at-risk family members who have a one in two chance of inheriting these genetic changes, it allows us to do genetic testing to see if they do or don't carry that same genetic variant. That means that they either need to keep seeing a cardiologist if they do or they can be released from all future clinical screening if they don't carry that genetic variant. And importantly, if they don't carry it, they also can't pass it on to their children. And so that can rule out whole big branches of families and just offer a lot of reassurance. What got you into science in the beginning? I actually think it was something as stupid as reading Jurassic Park, actually. (laughs) And then when I was in high school and choosing what degree I wanted to do, I think was around the time of the first Ebola outbreaks. And so I decided that's what I want to do. I want to be a virus hunter and go and go to Africa. And my mum wasn't very happy with that idea. But um, I think that was what, and and obviously I enjoyed doing it in high school. Um, But I went to a country high school and there wasn't a huge amount of science at my high school. So I don't really know where the motivation came from, to be honest. What does a typical day look like for you juggling both your genomics research and your clinical care responsibilities with your families? I guess a lot of my day looks like it's like Zoom meetings after Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting. Some of the fun things I really do is I've got lots of really great students and staff in my team and so we spend a lot of time talking about data that they've got or you know papers that they're writing. I lead a couple of national and international initiative. So one of them, we've got this Australian Genomics multidisciplinary team meeting that's a national thing that that I run where we talk about uh, results of cardiac genetic testing. And it's really fun. And we absolutely love it. We're getting to the end of the recruitment for that. So they're trickling through now. We're all kind of keen to work out ways we can keep meeting to talk about stuff. So (laughs) that's what we love doing. And another example is an international gene curation thing that I'm leading. And so we've got people from Europe and the US and Australia. And we talk about like whether certain genes are actually associated with certain diseases and best part about that is in a lot of papers and going to a lot of conferences and and talks and things now it's become really clear that in the cardiac space the world is waiting for us to say what the evidence is for these certain genes and these certain diseases so this is actually impacting on the the types of genetic test reports that people get all around the world which is a little bit of pressure but it's also really exciting to do something that has that big an impact. Jody, what would you say is the primary objective of your genomic research? What are you trying to achieve? I can safely say that there's three. So one is around can we, you know, use really comprehensive genetic sequencing approaches to diagnose people with cardiac diseases that don't can't get a genetic diagnosis in other ways. The other is can we actually use that genetic diagnosis in any of these families to actually predict who's going to have the worst outcomes? For example, you know, requiring heart transplants or having sudden cardiac arrest. And some of the evidence suggests actually you can actually predict those sorts of things based around genotype. The third thing, how do we develop scalable genetic counselling so that everyone has access to the right you know, genetic counselling and information and 
how can we better support families through all of these processes? And one example is I have a PhD student who's also a genetic counsellor and she's been developing a psychological support intervention for families who've had a young sudden cardiac death in their family. Because through a lot of the research that we've done in the past, we know that they have extremely high rates of um, prolonged grief and post-traumatic stress. And that's the kind of thing that you really need a clinical psychologist for. Why did you choose cardiac diseases? Well, in 2002, when I finished my grad dip in genetic counselling, there weren't actually many genetic counselling jobs around. And my parents were concerned that I would never get a job despite having all of these years of university. So I actually moved back home with them and I worked with my mum at the local credit union for about six months and I couldn't get a job anywhere. And it just so happened that the first job I got was in cardiac and I absolutely loved it from the moment I started. And that was in a research setting as well. So it was kind of that, you know, from the beginning, the the combination of research and clinical and genetic counselling. So I've done nothing... Since I know nothing about any other genetic diseases except for cardiac. I'm your person. <laughs> What's the next big goal for you and your team? So the next big goal for our group is, you know, we've we moved here to the Garvin Institute 18 months ago. So establishing our research projects and moving all of our ethics and things like that has been a fairly slow process, but we're starting to recruit new participants now. And so it'll be really exciting to get things done. Jodie, you're a passionate advocate for women in science. What's your vision for how science should embrace its talented female scientists? I'm a huge advocate for women in science, and I sometimes get myself in trouble for that. But um, I guess my vision of this is that, you know, from my perspective, I cannot for the life of me see why men are thought to be better at this than we are. And, and they're not. I mean, women have so much to offer. The fact that, you know, so many senior women and even not so senior women are still in science and they've had to fight against every single barrier that's been presented to them and they've managed to find ways around it and they've managed to still be productive and, you know, do really important things in our fields. I mean, that goes to show if people like that are around, why aren't we supporting them? They're so resilient. There is nothing mediocre about it. They're just amazing people. My vision is that gender becomes nothing, you know, like I want to I want to have something great happen in my life where people don't tweet it and use the hashtag woman in science. Like, seriously, who cares if I'm a woman? I'm just a person in science and gender should not actually factor into this because we're all equally good at it. Now, Jodie, this is the fun bit of our interview where we ask you five quick questions. It's the fast five. What's your favourite thing to do in your spare time? Walk my dog. Favourite movie? The Proposal. Favourite heroine? Hermione. Biggest success story? Oh, I delivered my niece. Favourite holiday? My husband and my son and I did a driving holiday around California and went to San Francisco and Yosemite and Sequoia and lots of really cool places. That was easily the best. Associate Professor Jody Ingalls? Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. It's fun to chat. If you'd like to know more about Associate Professor Jody Ingalls' research or the work of the Garvin Institute of Medical Research, head to garvin.org.au. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and share with other podcast lovers. I'm Mara Jean Tilly. Thanks for listening. 
This podcast was recorded on the traditional country of the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. We recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders, past, present and emerging.